Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is episode two, where we are officially joined by our third member, Alex Robinson of Atomic Robot. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Also joining me tonight, Mr. Alex Argo from A-Star Software. That's me. So guys, it's uh, been a busy week for me. I don't know about you guys. How's it been? I've just been hanging out pretty much, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I heard you got to go to Washington, D.C. and go to a pretty sweet conference, though. So I was curious uh, how that went. I did. Um, It wasn't quite the conference I was expecting. The topics were decent. Uh, The format I think I had the most problem with. Uh, I wasn't expecting the format to be the way it was. And I think that kind of demoralized me by the end of the first day. And I was almost considering not going back on the second day, which I've never done. Uh, Usually I'll invoke the law of two feet on a single session at a conference and just go join another one in progress that sounds more interesting. But I was ready to invoke the law of two feet on the conference after the first day. Remind our tens of listeners uh, what, what that conference actually was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this was RW DevCon put on by Ray Winderlich and the 360i Dev guys. And it was in Washington, D.C. this past weekend. And there was a fairly decent turnout. I think it did sell out. So they, they had capped it probably around 180 people, I believe they said. And this was their very first conference. Yes. This was their and- very first conference in... I will say the logistics were really well run. Uh, I believe it was the 360 iDev guy that was handling the logistics. And then uh, Ray Wenderlich was running the the, the uh, content. It's a very big job, a very hard job, and they worked very hard on it. And you could tell that they worked very hard uh, rehearsing these sessions, trying to make sure that the timing was right on them, that they're... Uh, pieces of the sessions didn't go too long or weren't too complicated and they did put a lot of effort into it uh it probably just was not the format for me yeah you know they're trying to do something unique and bring their tutorial format to a conference and that doesn't sound like an easy task no um i'm the type of guy that that hates the corporate training where you go sit in a some training center for a week and you're you're handed this book that says go click file click new click file project and the step-by-step kind of thing which is very helpful for some people but not for for people like me Uh, i want to know the why rather than the what and there was a lot of the what going on in this conference and I, i wish there was a little bit of the why in the very first part of each session, but it wasn't enough for me. And so it just, it left me kind of wanting more or feeling like I didn't get the value that I wanted to get out of it. At least that was on the first day. Um, so these sessions, the way they're set up, it was a brief, about 20 minute or so lecture, and then a 20 minute demo where people were supposed to live code along with the presenter and then a 20 minute or so lab it worked out okay the the demo part where everybody's typing along 
the first day. I tried it a couple of times. Didn't feel like I was learning anything while doing that because I was too distracted with trying to fix syntax errors or other people raising their hands and interrupting, saying, hey, I got this problem. Uh, or could you scroll back up? I missed this part. So that part was distracting. And then the labs, I went through them for the most part on the first day and just wasn't enjoying myself. I though I am glad, though, that I did go back on the second day because I kind of adjusted my expectations. So the second day sounds like it was a little bit better. What was the what was your favorite thing that you got to experience on the second day? On the second day, so at the end there were some inspirational talks and some of those were very good. And actually the ones some of the ones on the end of the first day were very good too. Uh, these were not necessarily technical talks, but maybe uh, paths and a little that these people have taken in their lives or uh, there was one on identity, and this was a very well done talk. The ones that weren't necessarily the the regular tutorial writers, I felt like I got more out of those guys. I think a lot of it too is where you are in your your phase of learning. You know, for somebody who's just getting started or intermediate, the hands on tutorial probably works really well. But for you and and people who been doing this for several years are probably looking more at a more for the the theory and the high level and you can fill in the gaps yourself yeah you're right most conferences they they cater to the more broader introductory experience which was i was very excited about this one because it had three tracks and a, a beginner intermediate and advanced i just didn't get as much out of the advance as maybe I wanted to, especially on the first day. But the second day was better. So this was uh, also your first time you've been really forced to get familiar with Swift at this conference. What were your impressions? So I did do some of their Swift tutorials at the airport the night before just to make sure I could at least grok some of the syntax and whatnot. And I've in the past played around a little bit with Swift. I haven't written a whole lot. I did write more this time around. I didn't sit there trying to translate everything into Objective-C, which I've done in the past with some other samples. I find it to be a interesting language. It looks pretty until you, say, mix in some of the, the Objective-C compatibility where you have, you'll have this method and it's parameter list, and then inside these parentheses are all these parameters, and then sometimes there's a name with a colon in, attached in front of a parameter. It's like, that doesn't look like it belongs. So I find that a little discombobulating. But overall, the Swift stuff wasn't too hard. I do feel like it may have distracted from the message in some of the sessions. There were definitely things where it's like, well, I'm learning about auto layout animations. To me, speaking in the lingua franca of Objective-C would have gotten the message across a lot clearer than with Swift because it's just this extra layer that my brain still has to translate. I think there's a lot of people, though, who have been thinking more in Swift about iOS development lately than 
than Objective C. Like people do it every day. Like the people writing all these Swift tutorials. I mean, that, that's probably their lingua franca. Uh, and maybe even you know people who are new to the platform. That's all they've learned. Uh, so I don't know. I, I I love Objective C, and I'm really dreading actually having to to start using Swift full time. Although it seems seems like a really cool language. Yeah, I definitely think if you're just now learning, you're probably are going to start with Swift because that seems to be the direction that that Apple is pushing everyone. But it's also, you know, if you're selling books or tutorials, that's probably probably where the money is. Um, people are probably going to be less likely to buy into Objective-C training, you know, as time goes on. Yeah. One thing that I find interesting, it's just as a kind of an under-the-hood look objective c when you get down to it it's very much a compiler front end that looks that makes code look object oriented um, swift is a functional language that makes code look object oriented which coincidentally there's another very popular language out there that is functional but makes up makes the code look object-oriented, and that's JavaScript. And for me, that taste, the taste that <laughs> JavaScript always leaves in my mouth, it's just so bad. And um, because of this uh, object-oriented functional thing, it it almost bleeds into my Swift opinion. Is it the functional trying to be object-oriented thing, or is it your extreme hatred for anything JavaScript, like most <laughs> developers have, who aren't web developers. <laughs> In my career, I have tried a number of times to love JavaScript, and it's just never happened. And I think that knowing that they're both implemented in somewhat of the same principle, typing issues aside, to me that that just throws up a red flag that says, hey, be careful. You don't know what you're getting into here. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been working with Swift since um, since the gold release. And, you know, it, my first reactions to it weren't necessarily positive just because I had been writing Objective-C for many years and, and felt really comfortable with the language and, and personally did not see anything wrong with it. I, I was would have been happy continuing with Objective-C. Um, but after working with Swift for a while, you know, I'm starting to appreciate it more. There are definitely some some features that I like about it. Um, there's still features that that are a bit rough. Um, I definitely miss the more dynamic nature of Objective C with the duck typing and reflection and metaprogramming that you can kind of do to some degree with Swift, but it takes a lot more work and and you have to kind of drop down to Objective-C behind the scenes to to really make it work, uh, which, which doesn't feel pure yet. So I'm looking forward to some of those features hopefully making their way back in. But I also know that one of the main goals for Apple is safety, and you know having metaprogramming and dynamic languages makes it hard for the compiler to prevent you from doing something you shouldn't do. Yeah, after working on an, a large app with a large user base and finally turning on crash reporting, I am much more receptive to the 
the stronger typing nature of Swift than I was before. And I, I think when you have hundreds of thousands of developers on your platform and new ones coming in all the time writing apps that make their way into Apple's customer base, um, you know, their primary concern is stability and reliability. You know, apps that crash on a regular basis reflect poorly on them. Definitely. And it's not always the uh, developer's fault either from what I'm finding. So there are definitely times when Swift feels like it has training wheels on it. It seems like it may be a good middle ground between, you know, something like Ruby or or JavaScript that's kind of like the Wild West and then you have something, you know, on the the other end like like a Java or something like that with uh exceptions that you have to catch and you know all fun fun stuff uh those checked exceptions when they introduced them those were probably somewhat of an experiment and i think that possibly swift is somewhat of an experiment too they're really aside from if you count javascript there aren't that many mainstream functional languages out there and swift will be the first one yeah, there's, you know, Java has things like Clojure and um, Scala that has some similarities in, in the hybrid nature. Right, but uh, that's a small percentage of the number of Java developers out there. Whereas, oh, yeah, and I, I don't know how many enterprises get on board with Scala and Clojure. So, you know, Swift has this interesting marketing push from Apple that, you know, day one, you have 200,000 people or more downloading the intro book. Uh, so it, it gets a pretty good push, and it's hard to keep it out of the enterprise. And they got IBM to buy into it and, and kind of go in with them and train their folks on Swift. So I don't think they're going to have trouble getting into the enterprise as much as a Clojure or a Scala or, or even Ruby. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this is really the first truly mainstream functional programming language that is used in a functional way. I'm sure out of our tens of listeners, we're going to get some hate mail about you (laughs) dissing Haskell or or some language like that. Um, Well, it's not to say that these are not great languages. Um, No. It's just well, the it. biggest the biggest difference is the big marketing push that Apple you know put on it. Like they had their you know uh, big keynote to release new products and stuff, and after that they have the keynote where they talk about all the cool new developer things. But they they put Swift in the in the main keynote, and it was I mean they talk about this to to their shareholders and their earnings reports and stuff. I mean. There's not many languages that get this kind of FaceTime from from anywhere. And it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, Alex, you were saying that you're, you were initially underwhelmed with Swift and it's kind of grown on you and it's been the opposite of me because originally I was like, oh, it's this cool new language. I don't have to write all as much code as I do anymore, which may not actually be the case. Um, uh and then slowly I was like, oh, man, it's going to be a lot of work to actually, you know, uh, convert all of my old code over to Swift because I've, I've been working on the same project for, for years now. 
Um, and I'm, I'm still battling, you know, getting some iPhone OS 2 and 3 uh, code modernized, much less, you know, getting a, a whole new language integrated. And, and like you guys have mentioned, it seems like there's some things that still aren't aren't fully baked. So I'm I'm kind of, you know, holding off for now. And I think maybe for for new things or maybe a new little module here, something Swift would make sense. But it just, I mean, this this may be the next Java Cocoa Bridge, you know. Uh, <laughs> Apple's Apple's tried, you know, big pushes like this before, and then reverse course, garbage <laughs> collection, and Objective C, you know. But it it seems like they're gonna have a lot of egg on their face if they reverse course this time. So I think I'm just kind of waiting until things kind of smooth down, the tooling gets better, and maybe they fix some of the the current issues they have. Yeah, I don't think it's likely that Apple is going to change direction on this. I mean, garbage collection is one of those things that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bullet point on a slide in the, in the tools state of the union. It's not a, it's not something that they're talking to analysts about. Uh, Swift, you're, you're right. It, it, it'd be hard for them to change direction now. And they're in the same boat that you're in internally. They've got all these libraries and frameworks that are written in Objective-C that aren't going to change overnight. Um, you know, we'd have a, an extremely unstable platform if, if they tried to rewrite all of Objective-C and Swift um, yeah, I'm also in, kind in of, rapid fashion. I'm also kind of waiting for you know Apple to start using it some more in some of their their own apps, you know, maybe porting some libraries over to it so we have we can see what like Apple thinks Swift native libraries should look like. And and based on most accounts, a large percentage of Apple did not of the developers at Apple did not know about Swift until we knew about it. Uh, so they've now had several months where not only you know third-party developers have been using it, but internal teams are giving feedback and and using it and and helping shape the direction and and you know we quickly saw a one-one release of Swift um, and you know this week we we got Xcode six three beta one with Swift one two. And I think that demonstrates that Apple's taking that feedback and and making improvements in in very um, swift fashion. Would you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to avoid saying that. Um, Such a cliche. But yeah, they're they're definitely well, incrementally they- improving the language. You know, there were things I wish were there at one zero uh, that weren't, um, but. You know, to be honest, with one two, there were a number of things that they introduced that that are, were hot topics for me. Uh, the incremental compiles being one of them. There's compile times with the production version right now, or as the projects get bigger, are not not really uh, anywhere near what Objective C is. So the incre- incremental compiles should make a big difference on the on your routine throughout the day. Every time you make code change and try and rebuild and and retest what you're doing, having to sit there for a few minutes is is a bit painful. 
So I'm looking forward to to that. That's probably one of the biggest things. You just it reminds me of the old. The... I was going to say it reminds me of the old XKCD comic. Uh... <laughs> Where they're sword fighting. Yeah. yeah, the number one programmer excuse for legitimately slacking off. My code's compiling. It feels like launching the emulator for Android. <laughs> oh, zing! First one tonight. Oh, you might want to cut that one out. I'm nope. surprised it took that long. <laughs> I was going to say, you just need to practice the Pomodoro technique, and at the end of your 20-minute Pomodoro, hit the compile button, and then come back after your five minutes are done and keep coding. Yeah, I, I don't look forward to going back to the days of kicking off a compile of a, of a big app and then going to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> it, I thought I was over that. <laughs> I think it'll get better um, you know, with 1.2, but I, I'm one two it's beta one i think we'll see even more improvements before that goes gold yeah. uh, so so that's definitely a good thing and uh there's a a github repo out there that has test cases for all the different crashes of the swift compiler <laughs> and uh it, it, it's a pretty large number can and i do a coffee cup identifier yet that was the one bug that i logged with apple trying to use the unicode coffee cup it it's probably in there <laughs> uh but the one two version 83 percent of those crashes are now fixed so um and that's just beta one so i think we'll see more of that and, and i think co- community involvement like that giving feedback to apple is is probably a big help and the, and the great thing about that is those are executable test cases that can easily run and, and verify. Well, they're definitely not afraid to iterate on the language based on feedback because the code that is in one two beta one already doesn't compile the uh, sample code that I got from the RW DevCon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is definitely a breaking change. Um, they did introduce a migrator to take your code from Swift one one to one two. You know, from reports I've heard so far, it's not perfect, but it's not horrible either. Uh, that the few things that it doesn't catch are fairly easy to fix on your own. Well, in a large code base, you're going to be glad for any kind of help you can get. Yeah, and I think you know they might be able to fix some of those outliers as well before the final version. Which I, you know, we've got. 6.2 and 6.3 out there, betas of Xcode. I'm not sure when either of those are going to be final. And then, in theory, we might have a 7.0 of Xcode in in June. Certainly not before the betas are resolved for 6, I would hope. I would hope. There are definitely a few other things in this in this beta release that, that are potentially helpful you know faster executables are always good um, there's also changes to objective c so you can now annotate your objective c code with non-null or nullability annotations so uh, you can be a lot more descriptive about you know am i expecting this to not be null i'm curious how that plays with other objective c calling that code if it'll give you a warning or anything, or it's just more of a swift, a nod to swift. 
it seemed like there were a bunch of things in the release notes that were related to Objective C interop. I'm guessing yeah. that's all it is. I think that's probably the major thing, but that's a good point, Sam. There there may be some compile time checks with the Objective C code um, with those annotations, so that that would be a nice thing too. Or maybe the analyzer will will find things that uh, where you're passing in nil where you don't expect it. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't use the new beta, the six three beta at work because we're still stuck on Mavericks. Got a couple months to get that ironed out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were kind of hoping that maybe in June when they released the beta of Xcode 7 that it wouldn't require Yosemite, but I think that writing is on the wall already. It's probably safe safe to say. Have you tried to run the Xcode? The Xcode 6.3 beta doesn't even run on Yosemite at all? Uh, on Yosemite, fine, yeah. Mavericks, it when you open up oh, the DMG, yeah. it has a nice big international no symbol right through the binary. Hmm. I didn't actually copy it and try to run it. I'm guessing it just won't work. It's probably because it has some special UX kit uh, <laughs> stuff in it that won't work on Mavericks. It's got to be what it is. Yeah, and then we'll have Xcode 7 on our iPad Pros, and it'll be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Split screen, too. So have you guys looked into this UX kit stuff at all? A little bit. Uh, it's, you know, Xcode has it, according to uh, Twitter, and uh, is it iPhoto? The latest beta iPhoto that has it as well? Photos. Yeah, iPhoto was... Or oh, photos. It's the Photos app, yeah. The, the one that looks exactly like the Photos app on iOS. Um, that was the first place where it kind of popped up and people were like, hmm, what exactly is this? Uh, and I was kind of like, oh, it's just some private framework in, in Photos at that point. But uh, after we've seen it show up twice, it seems like it's something that is actually being used at least at Apple. So and it should I've, be for a long time I've wanted something that will bring those two worlds closer together. You know, not that you should take your UI from your iPhone and run it on a Mac. But you know, if you don't have to relearn a UI um framework to build for Mac, versus building for iOS. I, th- I think that would go a long way to bringing developers to the platform. Yeah, there's so much stuff that's needlessly different between Mac and iOS. Just, you know, from buttons to tables to collection views to, you know, lots of... I mean, all that stuff you'd think would be the same or could be the same. It's when you start getting to the navigation stuff that really is where you'd expect there to be differences. And I'm I'm guessing I haven't looked that much at UX Kit, although there are people who have already, you know, dumped the headers and stuff on GitHub if, if you're curious to dive in. Uh, Is it but, something that you could try to create your own app with, even if you were not knowing the documentation? Or anything? Could you? Is it complete enough that you could do something with it? On its yeah, own? I think they. So I, I'm not sure. 
how this is still on GitHub, but I, I saw someone has basically taken the the private framework that was there, put the headers out there, and they have like an example project of of using it to to do some stuff. I'll I'll get a link in the show notes hopefully so you can take a look. But it seems like you can actually build something with it. It's not like a full like one to one mapping to what's in, in UI kit, I don't think like everything's not implemented, but a lot of the stuff is there. It's probably just enough of what they need to get the apps cross platform. It sounds a lot like the Chameleon project, yeah. <laughs> but backed by Apple and used in their apps, so it might have a better chance of surviving. I think the Chameleon was a pretty big undertaking and to keep it maintained with every release of AppKit and UIKit is could not be an easy task. Yeah, well there's definitely different paradigms in the UI. Now in the Microsoft world they have the universal apps and when you buy an app on the whatever Microsoft store it's called you get it for both your phone and your PC but I don't know how they handle the actual universalness of that inside the app, whether you're getting a very similar interface that you would get on the desktop as you get on the phone or or how it works. But maybe we're moving towards something like that. Well, the, the kind of weird thing to me, too, is if you did want to have some type of unifying uh, library, like, you know, you already use the exact same, for the most part, foundation on you know, iOS and, and Mac OS 10, but like if you wanted to make a truly universal iOS app, uh, you, you wouldn't create a new, at least I don't think you'd create a new, you know, namespace, a new, you know, UX kit. I would hope there'd be UI kit and you could, you know, conditionally call stuff or even have all the same stuff in the same app so that you can compile. So I'm not sure if it's, even what you'd want if you wanted to get a universal UI framework for for Mac and iOS. Like, how would you do it if, if you were going to make your own? Would you extend UIKit, or would or would you want something completely separate? I mean, well, there's probably way more iOS developers than Mac OS developers, on, right? For good or bad, AppKit's uh, has some age on it. Yeah. And there are probably things that are done better in UIKit. You know, having, I'm sure the engineers learned from AppKit, you know, what they like and don't like. But you could definitely go a long way with just having UX kit button and UX kit color rather than just having to switch between NS color, UI color, NS button, all those. Don't forget, forget about, about CG, CG color. color. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they all have a CG color property. Yeah, you kind of have to drop down the core graphics if you want to be cross-platform. You know, drop down the foundation stuff uh, so you can get you can get there, but it the, there's more code and it's you know you start playing around with more C types than you might want to. Yeah, if actually if you want to pick apart a color object's details, the NS color has way more features than UI color does. 
Yeah, I think AppKit probably has more power under the hood than UIKit um, for good reason. What do you think is more challenging, developing a whole new language for a plat an extremely popular platform and introducing that overnight or replacing your UI framework? So this is like a, which would you rather cut off your left or your right foot? <laughs> well, I would, you know, initially I would think that, you know, why would they rewrite AppKit uh, and, and would they really have the engineering resources available to do that? But they did develop a whole new language that integrated with the old one. So it's... True, Although, but that, uh, it's so, definitely not outside of the realm of possibility that they could do it. But but that took several years to create this language of a very small team. Yeah, yeah the seeds so, were sown years ago, and they kept building and building until they could actually say, "All right, this is yeah. kind of why we've been doing some of this new stuff." Yeah, and I don't think it was necessarily the language that took time. It was getting Objective C in the platform to a point where it would work. Mm -hmm. and where they could work together. Um, and, you know, same with, like, iOS 7 and and larger screen sizes, moving towards size classes and auto layout and flat design over, you know, skeuomorphic designs with textures and gradients that are hard to scale. Um, so, you know, this may just be the first of many steps towards a new UI layer that has more in common with a more common API. You know, maybe not 100% overlap, but more familiar to everybody. Yeah, sometimes with Apple, it's not too hard to see in which direction the hockey puck is traveling. It's just when it's going to actually get there. Well, and it's got to be difficult for them with you know, their iWork apps, uh, their you know, GarageBand, you know, all these apps. These are not trivial apps by any means. So they're feeling the pain that that other developers are feeling and how to reuse code across platforms and why do you have to re-implement a button um, in different ways. So it's got to be something that they're living. Being the conference curmudgeon that I am, I went to the cross-platform app talk at the WWDC last year. <laughs> <laughs> that was another one that I was not too impressed with. Just well, you, you have to remember what Apple's definition of cross-platform is. <laughs> well, yeah, I understood that going in. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, it means Mac and iOS. <laughs> I'm Whereas cutting most... that out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, th I think when it comes down to it, UX Kit in its current form is just a thin wrapper from all accounts over AppKit and you know, just kind of a almost a utility for them to make coding on both platforms easier. But I I think it's too early to get to speculate too much about it. Yeah. And I would be completely satisfied with that. Just a, a nice thin wrapper over AppKit that I can write somewhat like an iOS app, I'm fine. And I think there's some private APIs that you can't get to on AppKit with sandboxing. Um but UXKit might expose those private APIs and make it possible. Except that currently it is a private API. <laughs> True. <laughs> but if they were to make it public, you know, that's one way of, of fixing that. You know, 
to make calling that private API safe. It, yeah, it'll be interesting what happens. I don't think we're going to be getting UX kit even in, in June. That seems too early, especially with some of the rumors that the next OS releases are going to be... Or point releases, then revolutions. Yeah, bug fix Evolutions releases. over revolutions. The talks of the TikTok cycle. <laughs> I'm I'm good with the uh, with the bug fix releases. I think that that would be a good thing. Give everyone a chance to catch some breath. It'd be nice. Yep. I'm just hoping that iOS 8 can get a large enough adoption so I can drop iOS 7. Are you tracking that in your current apps right now for your clients? Uh, I think it's for most of them. It's pretty close to the market uh, numbers that Apple and others have. But out there, I'm seeing 72 to 74 uh, percent in most places, uh, which is still uh, it, it's better, but still too low to drop it. And to be honest, my major reason for wanting to drop iOS 7 is so I can start using frameworks, <laughs> and um, you know, just because I love CocoaPods, uh, you know, we adopted CocoaPods pretty early, and it's been a great thing there were definitely some frustrations early on but i think that project has come a long way and and is is a great tool that i'm having trouble using with swift there's a the new version that's still a pre-release can support swift but as far as i can tell it only you know it only works with ios 8 because of frameworks dot three six pre right now i've tried it uh when i've tried to use that before and compile you know build for ios 7 it stops me right there and say nope you need ios 8 um because of a framework because it's using frameworks yeah yeah, because of frameworks and there's so many things with frameworks that you know it it would be really nice to be able to move in that direction and i think dependency management gets better and i i think you know alex talked a little bit about slowly introducing Swift in areas and in modules, and I think frameworks make makes that easier. But I think also if you start thinking about your project in terms of frameworks, your code is probably going to be cleaner, you know, cleaner separation of concerns. Um, you could do that with CocoaPods today, but it takes a little bit more work. Yeah, CocoaPods has really been a godsend and also a devil send at times because it's great when it works and really bad when it doesn't work it's been pretty rare in the last year or so that i've run into any issues other than making sure i updated to the latest version i know there was a you know a few migration points where where i had to update my environment for things to work again but after that i haven't had too many troubles yeah, typically an Xcode upgrade might cause some bumps in the road. I was trying to use it with frameworks earlier last fall and was having mixed luck with it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's definitely a project I wouldn't mind seeing Apple Sherlock. Not that I don't mind using CocoaPods, but I feel like that should be baked in. And my peers, you know, peers on the Android side have Gradle. And that's endorsed by Google, as far as I can tell. So 
I know it took a while for them it's to more move than over. And, yeah, <laughs> it's it's baked in. Yeah, so it. I won't say it works perfectly, but you know, it's it's like you said, it's baked into the tooling. It's it's baked into the way they do things. So um, you but, can use Cocoa Pods to some degree if you're doing an Objective C Swift mix, but I've run into issues where it works up to a point and it, it'll build fine but when I try and use a class that references a type from a CocoaPod in a unit test, it just doesn't work. Mm. And you know, maybe that's me not doing it right, but, uh, but Isn't Gradle more of a build technology rather than a dependency management technology? So I think I they think use it, Maven under the hood. Yeah, it's it's both. I am actually really jealous of the the Gradle build functionality that Android has added. Before we move away from Swift, um, you know, I, I think the language draws from so many different languages that I think there's something in there for everyone. And and I had the same impression as you that it. It felt a lot like JavaScript, looked a lot like JavaScript at first. But after working with it for a while, I, I don't really have the feeling. It doesn't feel like JavaScript. If, if anything, it feels more like Java because of the type system and generics and things like, you know, enums feel a lot like Java. Um, well, so it's hard it, to be it, as bad as JavaScript. So, And I, I, I know for a lot of people comparing it to java probably is not selling it very well but um but like i said there's a little bit of everything there's a little bit taken from ruby a little bit taken from haskell a little bit taken from all sorts of places so it's a it's an interesting language in that regard everybody steals from everybody that's just good you wouldn't want everybody going off in their own direction and not taking input from anybody else Right. And historically, having the best language doesn't make it a successful language. I think familiarity is one of the key factors for a lot of languages being successful. I I think Java would not have been successful if it didn't look like its predecessors. Uh, You know, C, C++. Um, You know, I, I I think borrowing from popular languages drives adoption more. Yeah, with the exception of Ruby, there's not a whole lot of languages out there that don't derive from some kind of C-based background that made it. Yeah, and there's definitely domain-specific languages that, you know, things for, like, statistics and, and such that, that are unique and that may or may not borrow from other languages as much, but you know, those are unique cases. Right. But out of your mainstream languages that aren't C-based, you've got, what, Ruby, Python, which is arguably mainstream, uh, Visual Basic, which nobody would, wants to admit is mainstream. Uh, I don't think it still is. <laughs> uh, would Python Maybe be more popular if it had ago. curly braces? I like the white space. Just saying. It's horrible. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think it has a little bit to do with geography, too. Yes. Um, in our market, Ruby is probably more popular than Python, but West Coast, 
I wouldn't be surprised if Python was bigger. But that's this, anecdotal. Well, even if you go to some other cities in Ohio, I think popu- or Python has a much stronger hold than it does in Cincinnati. And it depends on the industry that's dominant in that area as well. Well, we also had the late, great Jim Wyrick here. That helps. Um, we yeah. also had a, one of the Rails committers in town. Um, so, you know, we had a decent uh, concentration of Ruby expertise here. So I think we're getting along. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Does, does anyone want to throw out a fun library of the week they found? Or Yeah, let's do a quick round because we are running out of time. My pick this week is a class called GH Run Loop Watchdog from Justin Spar Summers. He's from the Reactive Cocoa team. And what this class does is it will notify you when your main run loop has taken too long. It'll print a message in the console or execute a block that you provided whenever a run loop takes too long to execute. And that length is set by a threshold that you can give it or it has a sensible default. Uh, We used it at work to put out a little red warning light whenever our code is executing too much on the main thread and making the UI unresponsive. Argo, do you have anything you saw that was interesting over the past week or has helped you out? There was one thing. uh, It was related to continuous integration, so I'm going to save it. I wasn't prepared. I'll come with something next week that's good, though. Okay. And Alex? One thing that I saw come up this week is the Swift Bond library, which is a... a, I've always been jealous of the Max Cocoa bindings, and we never... That never made it to the iOS platform. Mm -hmm. Um, So this looks intriguing. Um, You could probably do everything that it does and more with Reactive Cocoa. Uh, but Reactive Cocoa, you got to change the way you think and, and build applications. So if you're not ready for for doing that, uh, Bond might be a, a nice binding library to, to get you part of the way there. Is that found on GitHub? Yes, that's uh, Swift Bond on GitHub. So guys... Uh... I think that's about all the time we have for the for this episode. Uh, Argo, would you like to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me uh, at A L E X A R G O Alex Argo at on Twitter, uh, and you can find um, my day job at astarsoftware.com. Right, and Alex Robinson, you can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter or Atomic underscore Robot. Uh, for Atomic Robot. Excellent. And I am Sam Corder. That's C-O-R-D-E-R at Sam Corder on Twitter. And you can also find our podcast Twitter account at SharedInst I-N-S-T as well where we tweet about new episodes coming out. Alright guys, see you next time. See you Sam. See ya. Maybe our CI talk could be a, a thing that we keep mentioning that we're going to get to, but that never get to. So people keep listening until we do. That might be a good strategy.